The Tea Health Show, medical lifestyle show. Good morning, this is Chris Evans-Smith and you're listening to the Tea Health Show. It's wonderful to be here in studio. Of course, we have Dr. Mark and as always, and very, very special guest today, Dr. Chris Neyman, plastic surgeon, which is very exciting for us. So welcome, Chris. Thank you very much for having me. Good morning. Good- and hello to you, Mark. Right. How are we, do- how are we doing today? How's everybody? Oh, yeah, can't complain. So we have a very interesting topic, I think, today. I think um, so. We alluded to it last week. Um, we're going to talk about rhinoplasties. Now, um, nose jobs. For, for those who don't know what a rhinoplasty is Chris, I'm going to bring you in here Just quickly tell us How did you fall into plastic surgery And you know what, I know that rhinoplasties Is one of your favorite treatments And operations to do What made you choose this field? Good morning Mark, thank you um, Kind of career choice from 30,000 feet um, I'm always of the opinion that Plastic surgery chooses you, not the other way around. And from my perspective, I was always surgically bent and uh, with a preference for head and neck surgery. But following an incredible interaction with my mentor and a gentleman called Colin Song um, in the early 90s, um, it became quite apparent that plastic surgery was going to be the way that I was going to go. I was really not prepared for what was to transpire because from an undergraduate point of view um, you have very little if any exposure to plastic surgery absolutely and in some ways it's a little bit of a well-guarded secret yeah yeah so your first day in the ward at johannesburg hospital is an eye-opener to to say the least i remember prof song he was one of my external examiners (laughs) (laughs) that's going many many years ago okay so so you'll know the kind of man that he was absolutely maniacal and um i was very blessed i mean colin took me under his wing from day one and influenced me in many ways but particularly what was impressive about him was not only his surgical skill but a massive amount of knowledge and a work ethic that to this day is unsurpassed. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, when you have spent time in a government institution, mm. um, there is a juggernaut that is uh, perpetuated by lethargy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> For want of a better word. So Across find, the board, unfortunately. Absolutely. So to find someone who's so motivated, so available, um, just so present, mm. really, really impressed me. Um, I mean, having said that, you know, during your training, there was very, very little emphasis on cosmetic aesthetic surgery. You know, that was for other people. You know, we were hardcore reconstructive surgeons. Reconstructors. But, yeah, but the point of the matter is this, is that I'm of the contention that um, you, you cannot be an aesthetic surgeon or a practitioner for that matter without a solid, solid grounding in reconstruction. Why? Because if you don't understand what the norm is, you can never alter the abnormal. Right. So, and and this is where I want to jump in then. Mm -hmm. Um, Please, can you differentiate for us between functional rhinoplasty and cosmetic rhinoplasty. What is the difference? Why do we do this? Um, 
And, you know, then we'll go into a little bit more detail about who should do what. Okay. I think that's a hell of a good question, principally because I think modern day uh, what we call structural rhinoplasty, I mean, there's been a paradigm shift um, in nasal surgery in the past decade. So by that I mean years before, um, the functional aspect of the nose was the domain of the ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Right. Yes. Okay. And the cosmetic side of it or aesthetic side of it was the domain of the plastic surgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, and what has transpired is now a unique um, interplay, a synergy, for want of a better word, um, between plastic surgeons, some maxillofacial surgeons, and the ENT surgeons. Right. So um, to say that there's now um, a distinct differentiation between cosmesis and function is probably a bit of a misnomer. Why? Because most oftentimes a perceived cosmetic deformity is actually a cause for the functional um, you know, a, a deficiency in the nose. Right. So that's where the synergy comes in. So particularly at a place like Morningside Mediclinic, um, uh, we work in teams. Okay, spreading the love for want of a better word. <laughs> and the uh, so, yeah. a, a team would be um, a combination of a reconstructive surgeon, a maxillofacial, or an ENT? No, ENT and plastic surgeon. So, ENT and, and plastic. particularly at Morningside, I mean, this, this works beautifully because there's a lot of discussion um, that goes on embracing both functional and aesthetic. So the discussion will go something along the lines of what is happening on the internal part of the nose, what are the deficiencies, what is going to happen if the ENT surgeon alters a particular structure. Right. Okay. How does then you, you know, that impact on the actual aesthetics of the nose? So I would say that a, a purely cosmetic indication for rhinoplasty these days, as we practice it here, probably only accounts for about 7% of patients. Okay, so I want to stop right there because my immediate, my immediate thoughts are going to what we perceive on radio and, t- well, not radio, on TV and Instagram. I hate social media, as you, Chris, you know that. Um, because it's a false portrayal of everything, never mind of, mm. of uh, beauty. Um, there was a time, and I'm going back a couple of years, where it was customary for a 16-year-old girl in West Hollywood in, in L.A. to uh, get for her 16th birthday a boob job and uh, a nose job. It was in the northern suburbs of Johannesburg as well. When I, didn't, well I, didn't want to, I didn't want to say that. No, no, no. I mean, all my friends, it's, they'd go away on, at the end of Standard 8 and looking like the back ends of buses and come back with boobs and noses. You have to love my work. <laughs> okay. Well, Dr. Snowman, you're so modest. So, um, you know, it, so if that is 7%, Let's just stop there then and say, what would, what would classify you to be a 
pure cosmos, cos, cosmetic procedure? Um, is it just raising the tip? Is it shaving off the bump? Is it, you know, and then what, Let's stop there. Let's let's go there first, Chris. Okay. So I mean, let's let's look at the at the modern approach to to rhinoplasty these days. Okay. Um, once again, years before, it was a little bit of what we called a knee-jerk rhinoplasty. It was all done through what was called a closed approach. There were basically three or four procedures that you performed through that, and you got a very very standardized. Look. Yeah, everyone's noses looked exactly the same. Well, I mean, there there was a time, and I'm going back to the 80s, Mm. late 70s, early 80s, where you could say, oh, that's Dr. So-and-so, that's Dr. So-and-so, that's Dr. So-and-so, etc. You you could see they they had a a look that they would create, you know, and there was Miss Piggy and there was this. Absolutely. So, I mean, you know, we really, really want to try and and avoid that. So, um, one's got to have a very clear understanding in terms of the interplay of the varying parts of the nose. So, yes. so simplistically, one would look at dividing the nose into thirds. Upper yep. third, middle third, lower third. Okay. okay, so explain to the person, the lay person that's listening to this podcast at the moment, um, what that would entail. So that right. would entail, if it helped me, um, from the from the bridge between the eyes to about that first mm, two centimeters? Well, one y- centimeter? Yeah, give or take. So, you know, the upper third of the nose is predominantly bony. So you can yes, feel that. That's the hard part of yeah. the nose. O- okay. In most people. Yeah. L- let's, let's bring in our um, African patients. Absolutely. So, I mean, you know, this is a, a topic that's particularly dear to my heart is the so-called ethnic ethnic noses. Ethnic yes. noses. Now, that encompasses all all patients of color. Yep. By that, I mean it can be Asian, um, Asian, African American, South uh, South African. It could be um, Latino or what we call the mestizo nose. Um, you know, each one has, and, and particularly in South Africa. Is the Indian nose That's a fascinating topic Which we can talk about Because it's very different And that has Very different sort of Racial and Genetic predilections Okay You're, you're based on the origins we, but, but We'll, we'll, we'll touch that. on that one A little bit later yeah. Yes So um, As I said Upper third of the nose Is bony Middle third of the nose Is predominantly functional And cartilaginous Yeah So now that is a Once again It's, a, it's an unbelievably Complex um, a constellation of anatomy And it's the interplay Between what we call the central part of the nose Which is the septum mm-hmm. okay, And the upper lateral cartilages Now they interplay and they form a valve-like system And that's where a lot of the breathing Issues come in That is where you uh, Start engaging Flaring of a nose Yes, okay, but more importantly Is more the collapse of the nose Okay, ah. so on sharp inspiration or inhalation of air, the, that middle part of the nose collapses. Okay. okay. So that's the functional part of it. The aesthetic outcome of that would manifest as a loss of what we call the aesthetic lines of the nose. Yeah. So you might have a dead straight bony part of the nose, and then yeah. there's these two dents in the middle third of the nose. Yes. So the functional part is they can't breathe. The aesthetic part is that there's a dent. Okay. If you correct the breathing part by various maneuvers, which we can discuss, 
Those lines will be reestablished, and that is the upper and middle third of the nose that's now corrected from an okay. aesthetic point of view. Okay. Lower third of the nose, <clears throat> excuse me, is what we call the tip lobule complex. Yeah. Okay. And that's what many, you know, many, many patients will uh, come in and, and you know, their attention is drawn to that. Yes. Either having a sharper tip or either lifting or dropping the tip of the nose. Absolutely. Um, making the nose appear th- smaller by, mm. by um, decreasing the width between the ala. Yes. Okay. The sidewalls of the nose. So now, I mean, what I'm trying to say is, is that you cannot realistically deal with one part of the nose without the other two parts being affected. Well, you know what, that's the same principle as within aesthetic medicine. Yes. You cannot you cannot treat the upper part of a face without creating an imbalance uh, in the lower third of a face. Absolutely. You know what, I always I always let my patients score the upper third, the middle third and the lower third and you know what they never score it equally. Absolutely. And the moment that you treat the one part without the other, you know what, just think about it, you take an eight to a nine and you leave a five. So you know what the yeah. discrepancy between yeah. a five and a nine is bigger than an eight and a five. Absolutely. So I mean there's massive disconcordancy. So that's part of the consultation process. And I use um, a lot of uh, digital mechanisms to show, uh, you know, by means of sort of a morphing process. For instance, if you just reduce a prominent upper third of the nose, by default, the middle third and the lower third then look massive. Absolutely. Yes, okay. because you create a sharpness and absolutely third with a bulbous nose. Absolutely. Like mine. Well, have you got my card? <laughs> okay. So, Fuck off. No, right. no, no. Keep it tidy. But, but yeah, no, no, no. But absolutely. So you know, even worse. Have you? Do you get discounts? <laughs> yeah. So you know, by the same token, you know, patients will come in with very, very specific requests. So now that's the worst thing that can happen. And even worse is with photographs. I want to look like so and so. Yes, and um, Jennifer Aniston. I think is one of the biggest ones that you used to get. Now it's most probably one of the Kardashians. Well, that and Angie's always high up there, you know. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, can, I, can, I can, I can see that, and that's just the boys. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. So, um, you know, so uh, yeah, that, that's all part of the consultation process. Is to, you know, I think as a rule of thumb, and we've learned this from our American colleagues, is that you will never ever. Operate after one consultation in rhinoplasty surgery. I mean, I think there's a very, very good reason why there are very few of us that will do this on a regular basis because it is an absolute minefield. Mm. Why? Because it's a unique combination of um, intuition, surgical skill, surgical artistry, okay, and most importantly, psychology. Okay, so um, psychology. I, I, I want to just then lightly touch on something that I think we'll discuss in more detail later. Mm. And that is non-surgical rhinoplasty. You're not a lover of that. I know that. But do you think that non-surgical rhinoplasty can give, if done well, can give the patient an idea of what a 
change in the nose will do with the face because we know that uh, the change, is, especially in frontal projection of a nose, change how people perceive a face. What is your thought on that? Well, Mark, I mean, I think you've touched on a, on a, on a, on a very sort of contentious uh, issue and topic here. I think non-surgical rhinoplasty per se is a little bit of a misnomer. Okay, because rhinoplasty per se implies a surgical intervention. Okay, so um, it's a bit like the concept of lunchtime facelifting, etc., Okay. Ah, okay. Um, you cannot um, r- realistically alter surgical anatomy to achieve the same results long term. So long term, I, I agree, one hundred percent. So I think what you've said about giving a patient an idea as to what can be achieved mm. surgically mm. is marvelous. Okay. Why? Because it's non-permanent. Um, it is repeatable. But in trained hands, and that's the secret. Yeah, you know what? And course. this is this is something that we've talked about on uh, the show that I've been doing with Chris for a couple of years. It's you know what? It's about who is doing the procedure. Um, I always tell my patients, and Chris, I think you do exactly the same. The products that we use are safe. It's who's doing what, where. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think particularly, you know, in, in, in the nose, it is a, it's what I call an anatomically underprivileged area. It's <laughs> very well yeah. suited it's to South Africa. Absolutely. For, for, for someone who doesn't understand what Chris just said, yeah. it is probably the most dangerous area that mm. we can treat in the face. So again, we'll come back, um, you know, what to non-surgical rhinoplasties and then we'll discuss this a little bit more because there are pros and cons and you know what you have to very carefully weigh up the pros and the cons with the practitioner that you at at that specific time absolutely um, to to give you a satisfactory outcome or to create Serious complications um, But we'll come back to that Chris, so let's just talk a little bit about Functional rhinoplasty Now, is this the domain of plastic and reconstructive surgeons Or is this, as you said, the domain more of an ENT And you guys work together Yeah, so I mean I think it's, it's that unique combination Of both ear, nose and throat and plastic surgeon why? Because fundamentally, um, we are very good at the exposure of the anatomy. We're very good in what I would say the anterior two-thirds of the internal part of the nose. Anything further back into the you know, nose is a big danger area for mm. plastic surgeons. Why? Because you're not exposed to that in your training. Okay, and you, you know what I always say is, if you cannot deal with the complication of what you're doing, don't do the treatment. Don't do it. Mm. You know. So let's be quite honest. I mean, the further back in, in the nose you go, the closer you are to the skull base, and the you know the greater the chances of you causing a serious complication. So why go there? Exactly. You know, mm. leave it to the ENT colleagues. They're very comfortable in that space. So what would what would be the main reasons for someone 
to undergo functional rhinoplasty. Nasal obstruction. Nasal obstruction in the form of either polyps, uh, deviated septums, etc., etc. Just yeah, elaborate well, okay, a little well, bit. Usually it's a combination of all of that because once you've got disturbed airflow within the nose, there's certain uh, mechanisms that are set in place. It's a body's normal response to try and realign that airflow. So if it's blocked on one side, automatically you'll compensate on the other side. With disturbed airflow, the turbinates will enlarge and you know, basically promulgate a bad situation. Now, this doesn't happen overnight. So invariably functional surgery, functional nasal surgery, from the ENT perspective, will involve one or a combination of straightening of the cartilaginous part of the septum, removal of protuberances in the central part of the nose, usually okay, bone so spurs. you're using incredibly big words, which, you know what, a lot of our listeners are not going to understand. So dumb that down for us. Okay. I get the listeners. I can't understand a lot of it. <laughs> okay. So any deviation from the central axis of the nose... Will, That's the straight line. Straight yeah. line will cause um, aberrant airflow and a perception of blockage. Right. Yeah. So Makes sense. Get this, the 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 central axis or the the middle part of the nose straight. Yes. Okay. Then you got to, then they will start to um, uh, manipulate other potential causes of obstruction on the sides of the nose. And that those is being, where you, what you're talking about the turbinates. That, those those can be the turbinates. Those can be polyps. Those can be growths. Um, you might even have holes in the nose from substance abuse. I was going to get to that Absolutely. because, you know what, I think... Which is in, a huge issue. In, yes. in the northern suburbs of Johann, well, northern suburbs of Johannesburg, southern suburbs of Cape Town, and all over the country, you know what, there is um, abrasive substances that people are using. I'm, I'm thinking about uh, cocaine. Uh, I don't know what the new stuff is Crystal meth and cat. I don't know whether they. It's it's, cause it's all problems. sorts of things, and I I don't want to know what they are. But but there's all sorts of stuff, and it's a lot of it is inhaled and 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 abrasive. I should imagine. Absolutely, well, it was not so much abrasive. It's more on on the the blood supply to the nose. Okay. Most uh, of so what it does is they will cause vasoconstriction. Am I correct? Absolutely. So that right. they, you know, they cause the uh, the blood vessels to close down. So by virtue of that, if you don't have a good blood supply to an area, it's not going to heal from any form of trauma. So um, a lot of the preoperative assessment revolves around in-depth questioning regarding substance abuse because it does alter your surgery. And it does increase your complication rate exponentially. Exponentially, yes, because yeah. um, we know that patients with decreased blood flow and mm. uh, here we refer to people, uh, Dr. Snayman, that smoke, um, diabetics Subtle, but I got it <laughs> that, you know what, with decreased blood flow, you have decreased wound healing Absolutely. Uh, longer healing time more com complications Absolutely. Okay. The interesting, so, sorry, on that, on that topic, I mean it's um, well documented that individuals who Indulge in, um, you know, substance abuse will invariably put it on the obstructed side of the nose. Why? Because it opens up. And okay. They, and they breathe better. So it's, a, yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon, and we've actually documented this. Right. Okay. So know. they're using that's it for health benefits. Absolutely. <laughs> that's very interesting. I better, never better knew than that. Vicks, you know. <laughs> well, now I know. So I'm told. 
Okay. Anecdotal. All anecdotal. Absolutely. So we know that in on the high felt we mm. battle with allergic rhinitis sinusitis everyone complains oh i have allergies mm. um and 90% of that transpires into something in the nose absolutely how does that impact or play a role in um you know but contributing to functional reasons um for people to maybe go and visit an ENT or or a reconstructive and plastic surgeon well i mean obviously that's you know that's one of the main reasons why they would come come for a consultation you know because is, is i'm battling to breathing I or i have allergies both okay okay so part of the preoperative workup mandates allergy testing etc etc because a lot of that sort of stuff i mean listen we're trying to avoid surgery yes let's be honest an ethical surgeon tries to avoid surgery fair 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 enough so i mean your last resort is the blade you you know one can heal with a spray more often times than you can with steel absolutely um so you know as you say ethical practitioners We'll try and stay away from the knife for as long as possible. So you'll try everything in terms of allergy testing, you know, and then treatment thereof. So, but, but, but most of the patients, by the time they've come to surgery, there's been a failure of conservative or medical treatment. Okay. So uh, to, to go back one step, what are the majority or what is the, the most prevalent of these types of allergies? Dust, pollen? Absolutely. So, you know, once again, I mean, there's a whole whole battery of tests that these patients go through. But, um, yeah, dust, pollen, um, dust mites, um, feather pillows, and then we're going on to the sort of gluten type, um, mm. you know. Is that really such a prevalent thing? You know, but I... This Gluten and gluten three and wheat and you know it, it's uh, for me it's uh, I I've been I've been battling with um, diverticulitis for a long time and I went to a brilliant surgeon. We're talking about the nose, not your colon. <laughs> Hold on, come, I'm, I'm, come I'm back trying to are. put I'm, a colon in this discussion. Exactly. I'm, I'm trying to make a point. Um, now I, I'm I'm not going to be stoned for this um there's so many people that claim oh i'm gluten and wheat intolerant mm. and blah, blah, blah. is that really such a big issue chris look i mean very very difficult for me to to pass commentary on that oh but, come but on i think the point of the matter is this is that you have to exclude it exclude and, it yeah. okay so it's a process of, of, yeah. Yeah, of exclusion if you can treat treat it medically and get a more than adequate result and avoid surgery even better Okay, but by sheer virtue of that, the patients that will come across my doors have tried everything. Okay, and invariably mm. you're now seeing some form of anatomical distortion that requires correction. Surgery. Okay. Okay. So, so therefore the question then arises, can you get a, in your opinion, can you get a functional change in the nose with non-surgical maneuvers? You know, for instance, do you think that you could 
potentially brace the internal nasal valve with a filler as opposed to no, you a cartilage graft? You cannot. Okay. Not, not with a filler. And that brings us um, to a different treatment option, which is starting to become quite popular, mm. um, I, I, I see. And that's um, threads, surgical threads or non-surgical threads, let me call it that way, threat treatments for noses. Um, before we go on to that one, Chris, if we can tell the listeners out there, how do I approach this? How do I approach, um, I think I need a rhinoplasty, uh, or I think I have a problem with my nose. How do, where do I go? Um, and how do I get to a good surgeon who knows what he does? What do I look out for? Okay, so you, you're talking about surgeon selection here. Well, not only surgeon selection. I want you to touch on, hey, this is, this is what I, people with functional rhinoplasties usually battle with. We know it's, you know, it either you feel that you can't breathe properly. Um, when you have that, what do I look out for and how do I know, okay, it's time for me to go and seek professional help? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, by the time you've, the patient has got to that sort of scenario or level of dysfunction, they're starting to ask questions. Okay. So, um, you know, how does this whole process work? Obviously, first and foremost would be word of mouth. Okay. Once again, um, you, you know, social media, WhatsApping, Instagramming, etc., etc., creates an awareness. Okay. It creates an awareness of the actual surgeon. It doesn't create an awareness about whether he's Absolutely. good or not, or whether he's ethical or not. Absolutely. It's, you know, it, um, I, I take one of the, the most prolific injectors of lips in the world. Um, who was here a, um, a year or two ago, and she, she she said, "I am where I am today because of my Instagram presence." Yeah, no, I mean you're going to make me all emotional now. So the, you know, the, the so as I said, that is the starting point usually these days. Okay, then the patient will start asking questions, and the same names should start to crop up. Okay. okay. Why? As I said before, there are very few of us that do this on a, on a regular basis. Then a discerning patient will start to do his or her homework, okay, which invariably then starts with a Google search. Okay? Right. Okay. Please, God, they don't, they don't look at too many of your reviews because as a rule of thumb, as a surgeon, your first 50 rhinoplasties you really shouldn't do in your hometown or where you want to practice. <laughs> following following on, on, on that is then, is then establishing your surgeon's bona fides. Okay, okay what, so talk you know, to what, us about that. Okay, so what are the basic qualifications? Okay, and it, you know, from our perspective, it mandates that your plastic surgeon is... A paid-up and uh, accepted member of, of the a PRASA. Yes, of the Association of Aesthetic and Reconstructive Plastic Surgeons of Southern Africa. Yeah. So that's first level. Right. Okay. Which currently you've an ombudsman of. That's right. Okay. Okay. Um, then one looks for additional tiers on that. 
So most of the APRASA members are also affiliated to an international society called ISAPS. So that's, yeah. that's the International Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons. Yeah. So that's next level stuff. Why? Because if you are an accepted member into ISAPS, that means that you have international acceptance, recognition, and there's a code of conduct. Right. Ah, and Very this, important. Uh, yes, Chris. Uh, I, I want to. There's two Chris. Chris? I'm looking at Chris Amon. Um, that is something that I think we need to. Emphasize it's um, there's a code of conduct because um, we're dealing with so many, and I'm sorry to say this, Chris, and you have to agree, and I'm talking to Dr. Snayman here, Mm. um, that there are a lot of practitioners that are bringing disrepute and shame to our industry. Absolutely. So, you know, not so much code of conduct, but from our perspective, accountability. Sure. Why? Because the world, well, pre-COVID, the world is a small, small place. So our patient from South Africa, Johannesburg, would have had an opinion in Brazil, or they would have had an opinion, for instance, in Istanbul, which is one of the rhinoplasty meccas of the world at the moment. Um, and very soon, if you're an ISAPS member, there's a direct line. Right. So I can phone someone and say, Hi, how are you? This is the story. I have your patient here. There's a respect. There's a mutual um, sort of understanding. There's a free um, exchange, exchange of, of ideas knowledge, and information. Ideas, records. Ah, very important. Okay, so we're trying to create a uniform level or standard. Okay. Okay, so that's second tier. Okay. Third tier is what has your surgeon done? For, for himself or herself to upskill themselves in rhinoplasty surgery. Sure. And I mean, it's constantly evolving. On a daily basis. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I have to mention a colleague of mine called Dr. Cameron McIntosh, who's basically an ENT surgeon mm. um, with a massive amount of training in cosmetic rhinoplasty surgery. And he's started um, an association called Saucer which is basically the South African Association of Rhinoplasty Surgeons. And, there, and there, there are a few of us on this. But he's just the most dynamic individual who's basically put South Africa on the map. Right. Okay, so we now have access to the gods, the doyens of nasal surgery worldwide. And it's quite a unique sort of uh, a band of, of, of individuals. We all have the same psychological makeup. I mean, there's a... Uh, I think most surgeons have the same kind of. But makeup. this is different because there's a there's a there's a, a, a sphincter tone that is extremely tight. <laughs> Only retentive. Something Chris, like please, that. please I, don't, I don't sit get, down for fear of sucking here, but, up the furniture. Uh, no, I know. But uh, <laughs> but um, you, you know, and we all are absolutely passionate about this. We live it, we dream it, we do it, we talk about it, we but photograph it. But that's make you guys excellent. Well, you know. No, you know what, it is that. You know what, Chris, we, we, can, we can debate this and I'm not going to. Mm. But if you love what you do and if it, that's your passion, yeah. you don't do it for the money or the accolades. You do it because you love it. Absolutely. And that makes you good at it. Yeah. Um, but, but rhinoplasty per se... Once you embark on it, 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 
look, I mean, it really it possesses you. Okay. I mean, the amount of time and effort that goes into this, the discussion, the planning, the anxiety of of doing rhinoplasty surgeries unsurpassed in any other plastic surgical discipline, in my opinion. I'd even go so far as to say that rhinoplasty surgery is one of the defining operations of a plastic surgeon. Can I jump, can I jump in there? Be- because to my mind, you, you looking at a face, you're looking at a nose. Mm. When you look at it, do you have a very defined outcome in your mind? Do you know that you have you, to? I'm, I'm sure you do, but, but I mean, can, can you see it pre-surgery in, in your, in your mind, Chris? Yes, absolutely. So, yeah. you, you, you know, but I, I think once again, after one consultation, you're never going to get it. Yeah, sure. Because you only you have you to know understand this, Mark. the patient. I mean, yeah, you're yeah, giving absolutely. a snapshot. Yeah. You can score them. They're telling you, you are studying this and you're getting these snapshots. So there's but a lot you of. You do not understand the psyche of a patient. Absolutely. And if you don't do that, you yeah. cannot treat them. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. So the first consultation is just a little bit of a touchy, touchy feely kind of thing. Are we actually going to get on? Because the surgical part of it mm. is actually the easy part. Right. Right. And that accounts for for five percent of what we do. The other ninety five percent. Let me let me put it to you this way: the technical part anyone can do, but ninety five percent of it is the psychology, the explanation, the preparation of the patient. Why? Because he or she is going to be with you for a minimum of two years. Yes. This is not a quick fix. This is not like popping in a breast implant and going from a flat-chested individual to an absolute diva. doesn't work like that. Right. By sheer virtue, once again, of the anatomy of, of where we're working, there's a lot of post-operative swelling and things that have to settle for a minimum of three to six months before Absolutely. you even start to see those changes coming through. So, you know, um, obverse to what you would do, Mark, you put in a filler, you see it. Immediately. The changes is immediate, yeah. yes. So, And that's lovely. Yeah. The surgical part of it is very different. Yeah. Now, obviously, I mean, if it hasn't quite gone according to plan or whatever, you take the splint off, all right, and there's this name and sign, okay. You give him or her the mirror. If she smiles... Uh, you happy It's a done deal If they are quiet And they're starting to become hypercritical You've got shit for the next year Yep Okay Undoubtedly So So that's we, managing expectations so Sure Of we, course We have 15 minutes Less And I want yeah. to touch on Three things I want to touch on complications Yeah um, And I think we'll do that last. So there's two other forms, Chris, and, and we touched on it very briefly, um, of non-surgical rhino treatments. Can I, can I reclassify? Better. Better. <laughs> <laughs> treatments that we do for an aesthetic outcome, not a functional outcome, a pure aesthetic outcome of the nose. And that would be your tissue fillers, which is becoming more and more um, common and popular. But in my mind, is probably one of the most dangerous procedures that we can do with with a tissue filler. And then we have the threat. So let's let's talk about. Um, 
non-surgical treatments for aesthetic outcome with tissue fillers. Your experience with this. Right. And so you, Mark, look, you look at me. Yeah, Mark, I mean, you're putting me on the spot here because um, at this stage I have fairly strong views about it. Having said that, um, I think given current situations, uh, you, you know, as it is, fear, etc., of surgery, of being admitted, of contracting uh, the dreaded virus, um, means that patients will automatically look for other options. Alternatives. Okay. So give so, us your views. Why, why do you not like tissue fillers in okay, the nose? So I'll be brutally honest with you. Number one, because I do not have a strong basis or background yeah. nor experience okay. with injecting into the nose. The only time that I will um, indulge in this Okay, is as a temporizing measure um, for a perceived contour deformity in the nose, um, either pre-surgical or post-surgical as a stopgap. So I don't use fillers or threads for that matter as a primary treatment. And consequent to that, you've also got to understand the kind of patient that's coming in to see me. It's someone that has, your patient is someone that wants a permanent um, Absolutely. So, change. So I'm, I, for want of a better word, haven't marketed myself as an injector or a filler type okay. individual. So I'm not discounting um, uh, the validity of it. Sure. And, I mean, there are people like yourself who are incredibly skilled at this to uh, achieve a very, very pleasing outcome. But when you say that, and, and this is something that, again – like in choosing your surgeon, this is very important. Absolutely. You have to choose the person who's going to put that filler into your nose incredibly carefully. So how do you educate your patients and your colleagues on this? Why? Because we know every Tom, Dick and Harry on the corner here has done a two-day course on fillers and, and this is now the way to go. Yeah. You know what? I have been practicing for 20 years as an aesthetic practitioner. And the last thing that I did was start doing noses. Why? Firstly, because of the anatomy. The, the biggest problem that we have with the nose is that the anatomy in individuals differ. Not only that, the blood supply, and this is where this becomes so dangerous, the blood supply in and around the nose is very variable from from not only ethnic groups, but patient to patient and side to side of a nose. Um, the, and Chris, you're a, you're a much better anatomical guru than I am. The blood supply in the face works with anastomosis. Most of the vessels connect somewhere and they have direct or indirect connections to either the, your internal carotid or your external carotid arteries. Now, we're not so too much worried about the external carotid, but more so about the internal carotid Correct. because everything around the nose and the eyes mm. somehow connects to the retinal artery. Now, we even have that with our lips, 
um, the facial arteries that gives off branches to the lips, the labial arteries, etc., etc. If you get filler into one of these arteries, and I'm talking about artery, not only can you get obstruction of the artery, which leads to no oxygenation of the tissue, which leads to necrosis. And I think that's something that you guys deal with quite often. Necrosis of the tip of the nose, specifically, or the side of the nose, the, um, the nasal flare, basically. Mm. But we can get blindness. And this is something that patients don't understand. You can get blind from a filler. A filler that's put incorrectly into a vessel that connects to the retinal artery. And that's the big thing that we worried about in aesthetic medicine um, is the loss of either function or the loss of a sense. But, I mean, how do you then convey this to a patient? If you are um, that forceful in, in mentioning this, you're not going to have a practice. So, for me, I make my patients understand what the complications mm. of this. Yeah. Chris, you've been to me on, on that very, one. very, very clear for, on for me, if you cannot make an informed decision about this, you are misleading a patient. Yeah. One, unethical behavior. Number two, you said it earlier. If you cannot manage the complication, don't do the treatment. There are safer ways of doing rhinoplasties and this takes expert training and you know it takes expert skill to notice and know um, what what the possible complications will be and how do I manage and notice those complications the moment that they start this is not something that you can do tomorrow you need to be able to identify the complication immediately as it happens, as it happens mm. and, and then be able to treat it immediately before it progresses. Absolutely. And then it becomes a more safer, and I, I emphasize this, a safer procedure. It's all about your injection technique. You, you use fillers quite often, Chris. You know slow, no pressure, small quantities. And even more so in the nose. More so in the nose. I can imagine. Now, there's some people that say that using a cannula in the nose is a safer procedure. I agree and disagree because the type of cannula that you use can still puncture or create obstruction um, of, of the vessels, either through a pressure effect or an embolus effect. Um, and that's what you, that you have to deal with. So... I cannot create a new nose. If you don't have a nose, I can, I cannot create one for you. And you know, I'm thinking specifically of Asian patients because that's where we see the most incidences of complications, um, in the glabella and in the uh, nasal area and where we see the most incidence of blindness because these people do not have the bony part of a nose. It's like our African patients. The bony part, that top third of a nose is lacking. Um, you cannot create that with filler. No. You can't create that with threads. You can accentuate it. You can refine it. You can define it, but you can't create and I think you agree with that. No, absolutely. I mean, look, once again, I mean, that's a very, very specific subset of patients. I mean, there's a term for it. That's called platyrrhenia. It's a flat nose. 
Mm. Okay. So from a surgical perspective, how do you, how do you uh, build up or recreate? Michael Jackson. Let's, let's talk no, about let's Michael not, no, Jackson. No, no, no. Let's not go to the worst one. Let's uh, come back from that a little bit. Okay. So, you know, the point is, you can, yes, you can create a Western nose from an Eastern nose. Yeah. But it is, it's, it's racially incongruous. Mm. Absolutely, because your malar area um, is then discongruous. You change, you become Chloe Kardashian, where you can't recognize the person from one photo to another. Well, we're looking at her buttocks, so you don't look at her face, I and mean, that's different. <laughs> so I think, you know, you, you know, the point that I'm trying to make here is that you will make that kind of nose less eastern, not mm. westernized. Less eastern. Okay. And, and what do we use there? Well, from our perspective, we need a massive amount of construct, which would be cartilage. I was just going to say, you need cartilage. And where do we get there. that from? It's from the rib. Uh, uh, okay. I don't you know, these surgeons all have this godlike complex. They grab the rib at any <laughs> Look where it got us. <laughs> Look what happens with the rib. I mean, it's, it's, uh, nevertheless, that's another story. We'll be thinking very carefully we'll, about we'll, this guest. We'll, we'll talk about it ne- next week. But, um, so, yes, Mark, I mean, there's, there's no amount of filler that you can inject no. safely in the mm. nose to create that kind of. Uh, or that magnitude of, of, of change. Yes. And so I, I think this from, is your, yeah, from your perspective, patient selection, absolutely paramount. paramount. Number yeah. two, patient preparation and expectation management, right up there. It, it's, it's management of patients' expectations. Um, so, I mean, what, what would be the common, common sort of request that comes to your practice? So what would come to us is a patients with a slight hump, um, yes. On the nose, and okay. that we can that we can safely treat. So what you're really doing there is you're not decreasing the hump; you're just filling in the valley. Next exactly, to it. okay. it's all smoke and mirrors. Yes. With like ninety percent of aesthetics, ninety percent of aesthetics, and you know this is how we light reflects off the face by changing where the light reflects. We create a more appealing look. Oh, well, I like that. I mean, that's highlights and lowlights. I like that a lot. Mm. So, um, and that's what we play with. And that's what makes a good aesthetic practitioner, whether you're a plastic surgeon or a, a, a general practitioner like myself. It's having the skill and the eye. I call it the eye. Mm. If you can't see, and Chris, um, you asked a question, can can you see what the patient will look like exactly. when the patient yeah. walks in? For me, it's, it's like this. If you cannot see what the patient looks like after the treatment, before you've done it, don't do the treatment because then you don't know where you're going. Well, well you know, I mean, I, I think that's a hell of an important point. Why? Because more and more of us, particularly in rhinoplasty surgery and facial surgery, we're making use of digital morphing technology. Sure. No. So whilst that's not a guarantee... Okay. Sometimes it's not the perfection of the result that counts, it's the magnitude of the change. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So with this kind of thing we can manipulate photographs, etc. two D, three D, whichever way you want to go, and say, This is kind of where I want to get you to be. And I say, Chris, listen, I really don't like that or give us a bit more or whatever it is, or refine this a little bit. It also gives you a very number one. It, it involves the patient in the decision making process. Yes, and so it gives us an exp- a, a good clue about the expectations. Yeah, very important. 
Okay. I'm giving the wind-up sign already. I mean, we could go on forever here. I'm just warming up. Let's, uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, but there's so many things that, that we still need to talk about, Chris. Um, I, I would like us to just very briefly touch on complications of surgical rhinoplasty. What are the most common ones? And then we'll, we'll give out how do we get hold of each other, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So, you know, when one talks about complications, particularly in surgery, one looks at general complications and one looks at local complications. Okay. Okay. We also look at early complications, late complications, and those must not be uh, misconstrued with um, surgical sequelae. Okay. Surgical so that's a res- um, fallout, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, you know, obviously the general complications relate to uh, patients' general health. Right. And that's largely um, anesthetic related. Yes. Well, so, you know, I mean, obviously you are not going to embark on elective surgery of this nature in a patient with comorbid illness. It's just too risky. Yeah, sure. You know, the, you know, the benefits outweigh the risks. Not putting your life at risk, terribly sorry, we're not going to do this. Yeah. So those are those. Now, when it comes to the local complications, okay, um, I think our main things here are bleeding, okay, and that, that happens either intraoperatively or in the early postoperative phase. Please, God, this is never a life-threatening threatening catastrophic hemorrhage, a big bleed. Mm. But it's troublesome, so that needs yeah. to be managed. Yes. And most importantly is wound healing, okay, and local septic complications. So as you alluded to, it's loss of parts of the skin of the nose, loss of the lining of the nose. Right. Um, and you pick these up quickly and you intervene as soon as you possibly can. Okay. okay. Then more along the lines of the delayed complications or sequelae, as I alluded to structural rhinoplasty, here we're using a lot of cartilaginous material, which has its own memory, okay. over which we have very little control. So there's ongoing distortion of the nose, changes in shape, etc., um, which you do prepare the patients for. And last but not least is the unhappy patient. Okay, so that's Dr. a whole topic Snow, on its own. We we have one minute. I don't want even. To, okay, how do we get hold of you? Okay, so I'm a private practitioner at um, Morningside Medi Clinic, um, and the numbers are on my website, which is uh, drsnayman.co.za. Okay, okay, so for listeners, um, you know where to get us. You can get us. Um, on the website, the T Clinic, um, or call us 010-824-1393, and we can pass this information on to you. Fantastic. Guys, it's been a fabulous show. Thank you so much. Chris, we'll see you again soon, I hope. And, Mark, I'll see you next week. Yes, we're talking gynecomastia, man boobs. Man boobs next week. Have a good one. Cheers, everybody. The T Health Show, the medical lifestyle show. 